Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, Robert Crisgal, the Dean of American Rock Critics, joins Nate to discuss his books, Is It Still Good to You?, and Book Reports. In this episode, Robert and Nate discuss the role of criticism in popular music, the concept of semi-popular music, YouTube versus Spotify, blackface minstrelsy, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Today, I've got the honor of being joined by the Dean of American Rock Critics, Robert Christgau. The books are Is It Still Good to You? and Book Reports. Robert, welcome. Hiya. Glad to do it. Cool. And so, you know, I've rock criticism is a unique thing. And, and I, I want to talk about the books, but I also want to have a meta conversation about the role of the rock critic in the business of, of music. And so well, it's you, evolved over. It's been a long time now and it's <laughs> evolved. But go ahead. Absolutely. And you, you're the one person basically who's been doing it since the beginning, 1967. I would know Greel. No, Greel. Well, Greel is almost as early. And, uh, uh, he do, but he does it in a very different way. He's not as comprehensive as I am. Yeah, absolutely. He does more big think pieces, and and you have been in the trenches, keeping up with the latest music. You know, I'm twenty something years younger than you, and fell way behind. So it's um, a role that, as a young callow youth, I had a lot of disrespect for. But the way you've done it, I've come to respect and admire, simply because, in a way, the way you taught yourself to listen as a as a critic is pretty prescient for the environment everybody's finding themselves in now where we're all inundated with music. And what I'm referring to is your struggle early on with what little Wayne calls out. You know, if you're listening to music for pleasure and you're paying for it, you've got a different sort of critical acuity than if you're inundated with music, you're being paid to try to analyze in the flood. So I've been fascinated with that. Talk a little bit about that and how you taught yourself to deal with that inundation of tunes. Well, you know, I, I have to say... Um, there wasn't a lot of self-education involved. I, I, the, I, the first consumer guide appeared in The Voice uh, uh, just about 50 years ago today. More, I mean, more or less. It was sometime in the month of July, uh, 69. Um, uh, and, but that related, that followed from what I was already doing. So I lived with a rock critic named Ellen Willis. Uh, who at that by that time was the first rock critic at the New Yorker, um, but uh, but Ellen didn't like to listen the way I listened. I, I for, for starters, I got all these free LPs in the mail, and to be honest with you, I felt 
an ethical obligation to hear them all. And what them all meant uh, in those days was what, I mean, does anybody have any notion of how small the fraction is compared to what's available to now when you, when you count SoundCloud and YouTube and all of that stuff, which is completely impossible to track? Um, uh, in this case, it was, there were a, a six or eight or ten major labels, and they sent me all their LPs, uh, and I thought I should hear them all. Um, uh, and so I went to another apartment. I, we lived together on East 8th street. I had the old apartment I lived in, but which I'd maintained total rent for these two apartments was uh, $112 a month for seven rooms, four in hers, three in mine. Uh, and I went, uh, uh, actually 102, uh, uh, <laughs> um, incredible. Uh, uh, and I would go and I would sit in, uh, uh, the kitchen, which also had the table, which was my desk, uh, in the ninth street apartment with, uh, a, a, a portable record player, a, a changer, uh, on a table or a, maybe on top of the refrigerator. As I recall, I can't remember something like that. And I would stack six LPs on it and, and and see what stuck. Part of that was my theory is that the way you got to like music on the radio, which at that time was still a question. FM radio, so-called progressive radio, had hardly begun at that time. Um, you you heard a lot of things. You you put on WMCA, that was my station, or WABC. Those are the two big AM stations in New York. And you had it on all the time. I always did. Um in the car when I was driving around Essex County as a reporter in Jersey. But when I wrote, I never turned the fucking radio off. And some things would stick and others wouldn't. And the idea was to find out, if I started doing this with these LPs, what happened. And uh, we've you've been documenting it you know, for over 50 years now and created this body of work. It's eight books and counting, correct? I don't... Is it eight? Yeah. Yeah, something I like it is. that. I, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. These two, uh, four, so yeah, it is eight. It's eight, including the memoir. Yeah, yeah and, and with the website uh, as a valuable supplement to that. And so it's a, it's a really useful tool in this day and age when you can hear almost anything. You know, I kind of get personally offended if I hear of some artist from 60, 70, 80 years ago, and I'm not able to track down a particular song in five minutes with the Internet. And Yeah, I was just doing that today. Uh, there's this writer named Bob Stanley. He's a, he's in the Saint HN, and he's also a critic who does a lot of compilations for Ace and people over in Great Britain. And in his book, he lists all these rockabilly songs that he loves that I'd never heard of, and I tried to find them on Spotify just today, and I only found about half of them. Universal yep. jukebox, my jukebox, my foot. Well, you, know, you have to. Nothing's universal. It's true. It's true. And Spotify is very limited. It takes. Uh, a little extra effort to track down everything. And, and, and with the move to streaming away from MP3s, it's actually gotten a little harder in the last couple of years. And I predict it's going to get harder still. And not to get too off topic, but then... Yeah, well, the- apparently, I mean, I don't, I don't go to YouTube. A lot of people go to YouTube, which some people seem to feel is even a better source than Spotify. It is. I doubt it, it myself. It, it absolutely is. Um, it's, it's a much better source than Spotify. Sometimes it can be hard to tell what version you're hearing. 
Um, but sometimes it's not so easy on Spotify either. Uh, no, it's very difficult. Yeah, like why does this Herman's Hermit song have a Len drum on it? Is the kind of thing that <laughs> drives a dork like me insane. But um, YouTube is actually better. But not to get too far afield, I want to I want to talk about the two books. You've got two books that basically came out around the same time. You've got Is It Still Good to You, which is another collection of of rock criticism. I guess probably the fourth or fifth, and then your first collection of book reviews. Um, what was the difference? And 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 I've noticed that there are several book reviews actually that you snuck into. Is it still good to you? And so, what was the difference when you compiled those? You, what was well, the basic look, frame of mind difference in uh, that? As I've said, as I say at, at, at great length and with untoward enthusiasm in the introduction to both of these books, I've loved journalism collections since '63 or '64. I was somebody who wanted to be a novelist, discovered the journalism collection, and that was one of the things that convinced me I wanted to be a journalist instead. So Pauline Kael, A.J. Liebling, um, those are two real but lodestones uh, in my literary development. And I am, you know, I am a writer. I care about writing. Uh, I, 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 if you told me when I was in college, uh, chafing in my honors English program that I would end up being a critic instead of a novelist, I would have said fie on you. But that's the way it worked out. I was better at criticism than I was at fiction. Uh, and But I still wanted to write as well as I could. Um, so, uh, and, 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 and moreover, I wanted to write not, I wanted to write journalism that withstood that, that that would still hold up his writing 20 years or 30 years later, um, or 50, <laughs> now we're up to. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, I have. Um, and so essentially when I decided to quit my job at, uh, at NYU, um, uh, I immediately began thinking about collections, which had been on my mind, but which I didn't have time to work on. Uh, and I just started, I, because of my website, uh, which would not exist were it not for the Herculean efforts of my friend Tom Hull, who input a lot of that stuff by hand, and then organized fans who input more of it. I mean, some of it was in the computer and just was converted, but a lot of that stuff is pre-computer. And, uh, 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 and a lot of, of uh, typing on the part of both Tom, one of the fastest and most accurate typists I've ever met in my life, and a, a bunch of friends, some of whom I've met and some of whom I don't even know who they are, uh, fans. Um, so all of that stuff is, uh, 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 some of that stuff is, was converted from, from digital sources. Others was input. And I just looked through everything and said, well, what do I remember? That's really good. And I spent a long time organizing it. At first I thought there'd just be one collection, but when I began to see how much there was, um, and I'd always thought that, uh, that some of my, I, as a critic, I do write about books I write, and I write about writing and I like being able to do that. I like having that authority. And so I just figured out a way to divide it into two different books into my surprise, really, because collections are not easy to sell, even when you're getting paid as little as a university press is going to pay, pay because they still have to put in the investment of the, 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 the publication itself. Um, Ken Whisaker, my editor at Duke University Press, and, and one of the people in the university publishing who really understands popular music and popular music writing, 
Um, there aren't that many, but there's a few. Uh, Lindsay Waters at, at Harvard was another who did my Harvard book in 98. Uh, 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 he said, yeah, okay, let's do two books. And as I've told my uh, people at my launches, I think I'm probably the only person ever to publish two collections of journalism in the space of a single year, ever. Well, uh, it could could well be true. And and as you know, I've spent the last month kind of reading both of them and going back and reading your of. So it really has this feeling like you've been in my head uh, for you know six weeks now, and it's sort of hard for me to pull the two books apart, um, but. I ultimately the difference is the the book report you you go beyond music and for this show I'm going to I'm going to focus on the book the music book reviews you did there but the book reports is a much broader look and especially um you look into bohemianism as one of the the themes of that always been one of my themes which I, I began talking about with Ellen Willis who I've already mentioned uh, almost as soon as we were together in 1966 because the hippie thing was just beginning to gather critical mass at that time uh, and it was happening in our neighborhood the Lower East Side uh, as well as San Francisco when we visited there so uh, I've been thinking about Bohemia and she had before um, for all of that time um, and uh, whereas she sort of got me started and then ultimately after we split up she uh, mostly devoted herself to feminism I was very interested and I, I, I've been reading freelance about the history of Bohemia ever since that time, beginning with Malcolm Cowley's Exiles Return, a book I always tell people to read. That was Ellen's book. And, uh, and, and so, uh, and I don't actually think, if there's somebody else who has the knowledge of the literature that I have, I don't know who it is, and I've read the literature. Uh, uh, I, I've, I've read many more books than the ones that I wrote, write about in here. Um, uh, and uh, and I've given it an enormous amount of thought because in my personal life, I uh, a I'm I live I still live in the East Village. Uh, I live in what was then a Bohemian neighborhood, and as happens with Bohemian neighborhoods, is gentrified, but it still has that Bohemian remnant. Um, but never fully identified with Bohemia. And furthermore, I married a a, a girl who grew up a woman who grew up in Greenwich Village. Uh, so. It's been a very important part of my life, and I uh, and and uh, I feel that that in book reports, that that section that's the one thing that that I mean I write about politics too, and I'm as far as I'm concerned I do it very well. But but uh, lots of people write about politics. Not that many people write about Bohemia. And moreover, I believe that almost anybody who's going to read me has some kind of a connection to Bohemia. Not not everybody, but we're talking ninety percent. I think. I because Absolutely. when young people interested in the arts pass through something like Bohemia in their early 20s, even if they quickly go somewhere else. Absolutely. And that, that sort of cues up the first musical piece I want to uh, play, which is the New York Dolls' Jet Boy.
And that was the New York Dolls' Jet Boy. And I picked that because that's a group that you've been championing for a long time. And it also fulfills a concept that I think ties into the bohemianism, which is what you call semi-popular music, which the New York Dolls are, to me, like almost a perfect example of. They're, they never sold millions of units, yet they did have a pretty outsized social and musical impact. Right. I don't think they've... they've the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is still passed them by, isn't it? That's I funny. believe so, yeah. That, that's... Uh, uh, um, but yes, uh, this is a, a, a group that is genuinely beloved by a, 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 a substantial, a, a, a critical mass kind of audience. Um, tends to be smart. They tend to talk to each other. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, I believe, insofar as... Uh, historical permanence has any meaning at all they're not going to be forgotten uh any more than i mean you know i i think they'll be remembered as, as long as let us say the buffalo springfield a much more successful band who are in the, the rock and roll hall of fame and then produced neil young and other people uh i i think my my i believe in terms of their real their artistic life it'll more or less equal Buffalo that, Springfield didn't actually put out that, that many good, great records, you know, so. Yeah, the, the, the discography is pretty even between those two, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about that concept of the semi-popular artist, which, to my knowledge, you coined, and, and you know, music criticism in the past had sort of focused on high culture, which, without a lot of worry about what was popular and what wasn't, although, you know, the 19th century yeah. opera well, was... Well, semi-popular is a word that came to me at a party... <laughs> After I'd had half a joint with somebody who wanted to know what it was I did and what I was interested in, um, uh, I'm not a, I haven't had that. I'm, I'm not a m much of a head at all. But at that, but I don't have any doubt really that the loosening that happens under those circumstances helped that word pop into my head. And as soon as I it popped out of my mouth, but I, you know, at the moment I thought of it, and I've never forgotten it. And basically, it's music that that formally aspires to the values and pleasures of genuinely popular pop music without ever becoming massively popular itself, except when it does, which does happen. Um, um, uh, the dolls are a, a letter, uh, are a much, aren't, aren't as good an example as another quintessential uh, semi-popular band, the Ramones, who, to everyone's astonishment, including perhaps theirs, ended up having a career that lasted more than 20 years and having imagined this non-existent audience of people all over America who would identify with their black leather jackets and fast, snappy songs, uh, which seemed really silly. They were, they were on the Lower East Side. They were playing a CBGB. That's what they did. Well, in fact, they then toured for 20 years playing to audiences all over America that fit that description exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, and packed stadiums in Brazil. And if you go to see a baseball game, basically anywhere in America today, you've got a good chance. Of hey, ho, let's fun. go. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so to me, that concept of, of semi-popular artists is sort of a carryover because you started in Esquire and, and which had a sort of middle-brow, high-brow pretensions of covering music before. Yeah, well, they were paying, they, yeah, that, that was, that, Esquire's kind of, for me, was the ideal, not the New Yorker, Esquire. Um, it's where Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer were, worked and um, 
those were people I really liked and cared about. Um, uh, it was a little uh, more irreverent uh, than the New Yorker was, especially back then. Um, uh, and and uh, and they, uh, I, I wrote a piece of reportage uh, for Clay Felker's New York Magazine. Clay Felker, uh, well, I won't go into that, but he was had an Esquire connection. Uh, it was a very very successful piece called Beth Ann and Macrobioticism. It got me book offers, all kinds of stuff, much of which didn't happen, but Esquire called me up and asked me if I wanted to work there, and for a couple of years I did, until uh, until, <laughs> until the Jazzbo editor figured I really was not going to give up on this rock and roll stuff. Uh, he, he, assigned me, he had heard in, in 68, which was the first well, of the rock is dead uh, years, that rock was dying, and he asked me to write a piece about why rock was dying, and I wrote a piece about why rock wasn't dying, and he fired me. <laughs> and straightforward enough but you you at that point you're creating a niche because people had taken people have been criticizing concert music classical music in a serious way for a long time by that point they'd been criticizing jazz and, and to some extent folk music in a serious way for a couple of decades and you're one of the first to criticize pop and rock music in a serious way and obviously they didn't quite accept it but then you move on to the village voice and have uh, a weekly platform to basically just Review records. Well, and do and write about whatever else I wanted. The Village Voice was a wonderful place to work, um, and uh, once I established myself there, uh, especially as an editor, which started in '74, uh, and because in fact our pop music coverage was not very good, um, it's not as good as it should have been, um, and uh, I could see that there was this enormous opportunity to find to. to there were all these smart people writing about the music by then, and Rolling Stone and Cream especially, um, as well as just people I knew. Uh, uh, and and uh, and and uh, they were using a lot of schmoes in the in the music section for the most part. I mean, there were definitely exceptions, starting with Gary Giddens, the greatest jazz critic who ever lived. Uh, uh, but Patrick Carr, Jeffrey Stokes, a few other people I don't want to dismiss here, um, who I inherited. Um, but, but, uh, 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 I saw that, that the chance was to, to do so much more beginning by covering black popular music. <laughs> my first, my first, uh, uh, the first section I edited was about the Jackson five at Madison square garden by Vince Letty, later became the great disco doyen and now writes about photography, mostly from the New Yorker, uh, 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 I, 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 I was always one of the things that always offended me about about rock criticism in the '60s is how it ignored soul music, as it was then called. Um, and I made it, and that always, always that was part of my program with myself from the very beginning. Although it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be, but I did learn to do it. Um, and uh, as soon as I got to the voice, I looked for people who could do that as well, and and did what I could to emphasize it. Um, in that audience context. And that's one of the classic examples to me of a, a fight where you were basically paddling against the tide. There's, there's this you know, desegregation of music throughout, you know, from the late 40s all the way to the mid-60s, and then it quickly resegregated, you know, the difference between the Tammy show and Monterey, and then the even bigger racial divide. Yeah, well, the, say, the, the, the Otis, the, the, I wrote a piece about the Monterey Pop Festival for Esquire, um, that I deliberately led with Otis Redding, um, one of the few black artists 
um, to be featured there. Um, uh, but I, I mean, what, what the way I would historicize it is to say that uh, that for what when as long as it was AM radio, where that was the main source, which through '68 it basically was, um, there was plenty of integration. Um, and but then so-called progressive radio started, and all of a sudden, all, all the, the 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 black hits were let up because that was too pop. It wasn't rock. Rock had a by that time that notion had a weight to it, and and a weight it deserved sometimes. But it wasn't the only good thing that was happening in popular music. Plus, plus, it was at that very moment that James Brown was completely transforming popular music. I mean. You know, I love Chuck Berry and I love the Beatles. Uh, um, I probably like them more than I like James Brown. But who is the most important musician in this tradition? Without any question, James Brown. Without any question. Completely reorganized the ears of America. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, but, and for just that reason, uh, uh, white America had a lot of trouble hearing what he was doing. It all sounded the same to them. It sounded the same to me, too. Took yeah, me a while no. to learn to, to hear that, and 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 it was partly due to the fact that I had, uh, even in the mid seventies, before Nelson George and 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 Greg Tate uh, and Carol Cooper uh, really uh, surfaced at the Voice, that they were the really the stalwarts of the black music coverage of the African American who wrote about it anyway. Um, uh, but there was a guy named Pablo Guzman who had worked, been in the Young Lords, and he was an ambitious guy, and he would come up and uh, and and just jaw. He was the person who told me, made me go back and listen to um, to to Brown plus uh, uh, plus George Clinton, who a few visionary uh, white critics in the West Coast uh, really heard early. I and I had to catch up with him as well. And that's one thing I really appreciate about reading your oeuvre is the way you adjust on the fly. And yet you leave your opinions there. I like, you know, in the introduction, I think, is it still good to you? You talk about how you um, change things to you make corrections to correct matters of fact, but you do not change your opinions. And so things like. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, insofar as I'm wrong, and it happens occasionally, and of course what wrong means is not wrong about some absolute aesthetic. Although, I mean, I, in certain cases I would make an argument of that sort. My only job is to explain why I like something that I like as a smart person who really knows a lot about music and has heard a lot of music, and to explain why it is I actually like it. <laughs> and why, and uh, that's what I've always... And that's what I, as an editor, I was the editor, music editor of The Voice from 74 to the end of 84. And that's what I always try to tell writers. When I taught writing, I told them the same thing. When people like you would come up and say, what do I do? I say, first, just find out what you really like and then figure out why you really like it and try to put it in an entertaining and intelligent and concise way. That's the job as far as I'm concerned. And that allowed you the freedom to then modify your statements as your opinions changed you know right from the beginning you were pretty brutal on jimmy hendrix uh in that monterey review psychedelic Uncle i Tom. still think that was a shit performance <laughs> i think that to this day i have watched it i have listened to it because so many people think it's it he i mean what it, it was a shit musical performance 
what I did not understand and what I fully understand having devoted as much attention to it did it because initially I call him a psychedelic uncle Tom, uh, 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 which I, you know, that's not like I, I said that. So it's in my, it's in my work. But, um, what I, what I didn't understand at all, um, was how he was playing that all white crowd <laughs> that, uh, in a way that he was sure would attract their attention. He was sensationalizing himself, uh, in a way that would make him a star faster. And, uh, uh, and I still don't think he played very well that night. And and, and I've listened a lot. And um, that's a fair assessment. But, and I, I, I just want to make one sneak one point sure. in there. Um, and I think you're getting exactly onto it because his song selection on that, you know, night with the Dylan covers and stuff and, and, and songs, Wild Thing and Hey Joe songs that the crowd would be familiar with. But it also ended up, that ended up being the trap that Hendrix ended up suffering from and trying to escape. I mean, that's correct. You know, exactly right. And it's I wouldn't be surprised if the difficulty of escaping it and his and his horrible manager was Mike Jeffrey, right? Yeah. Get confused. Uh, um, uh, uh, could very well be the reason he died so young and so unnecessarily. Um, uh, I think uh, he was very depressed and frustrated about it. That and I've read biographies. I mean, that certainly is the indication. Although it was also just a horrible accident. You know, it's yeah. not a suicide. It was uh, somebody who did too many drugs and vomited in the wrong way. But and, still. And didn't, and didn't have people who knew what they were doing to take care of him. That's right. Um, That's right. But know, and, uh, yes, and, and, and you know, I, I also, as it happened, I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I think I like that first record, although not as much as I do now. Um, the second record I continue to think is not a terribly good record, but Electric Ladyland, and that was only two years later. I mean, that was a motherfucker. And I, you know, I have a lot of, um, I listened to a lot of jazz in college. And although I have no, I, I don't have the, f- the formal chops to be able to describe what I hear, I do hear it. Um, and, uh, um, and I know, and so I understood by the time of Electric Ladyland how remarkable as improvisations were in a, in a world where there were an enormous number of improvisations that weren't remarkable at all. Uh, where that was considered sort of the net plus ultra of you. That's what being progressive was about. That's what FM radio thought it was doing. It was, you know, pre, you know, giving respect to all of those bad Steve Sill solos. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, um, I mean, what the, he did one of the first jam records with Cooper and one of the Bloomfield. Yeah, Michael Bloomfield. Yeah, yeah right, right. Session. Yeah, Bloomfield was better. Um, How much? Session. But but uh, but in addition, you know, <laughs> they just went in there and jammed. They didn't really conceive it at all. Those those were pretty good players, uh, and Bloomfield was a great player. Uh, I think uh, Stills not uh, became better, of course. Yeah, and the still not, side not without talent, just Steve Stills, but yeah, the still side <laughs> not tends the giant he said to be <laughs> more song oriented. Um, but I want right. to play play our next song real quick, and this is this is one uh, that you introduced me to. Uh, this is "Problem Solver" by Lil Wayne. Mom, he didn't count no more problems, I'm the problem solver. He didn't count no more problems, I'm the problem solver. He didn't count no more problems, I'm the problem solver. Click, click, pow, 
problem solved. He didn't count no more problems. That was Lil Wayne's problem solver, which is is uh, pretty jarring contrast from what we're talking about but i wanted to put it in there because because that to me is a perfect example of somebody that i've i've been peripherally aware of i mean i'm a gen xer i was into the second wave of hip-hop from run dmc all the way through the uh tribe called quest era dropped out for the gangster stuff and i and i'd heard the name little wayne and everything but it's not until i i uh had the chance to follow, you know, you're a great guidepost to Lil Wayne because this is somebody who's literally dumping hundreds of songs out on the internet at one point. Well, that, that, that period, that period was one of the most remarkable uh, outflows of creativity in the whole history of this music, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, before then, he had his limitations. Recently, he's been repeating himself and hasn't been so great. But when that mixtape era and they were culminating in the Quarter Three, which a record I, that's a record I think I gave an A minus to at the beginning, um, because sometimes you just have to come in there, you know. Uh, it's it's very hard. One one thing I learned as an editor is assigning the follow up to a great album is a very, very perilous thing to do. It is very hard to write a review on deadline of the follow-up to a great album. You just don't have the time to acclimate yourself to what it is, and, you, and, and it is just about impossible to extricate its, it, it from what had, it had just been, what this artist had just been. Um, and so in the case of the Carter Three, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I did allow I did allow myself a certain amount of leeway doing that kind of work. Um, I, I I tried not to uh, jump the gun on things, and occasionally I re, I mean I uh, my last expert witness I wrote about this new Mekons album. The Mekons are a band I adore. I kept trying to love that record. I still don't. I think it's it's good, but it's not as what they're capable of. Well, this was the same sort of thing. And now, I mean, now I've come to regard the Carter three as his masterpiece. It's like, it, it takes everything that he'd been doing on the mixtapes only and shapes it better. Um, uh, it's a really remarkable piece of work. And that's, that to me epitomizes something they openly have struggled with throughout your work as a critic is that to really understand great music, even great popular music, it takes some time, and and you need to let it soak in. And if you're doing reviews on a deadline, it's you know while the the market is hot for the new product, that's very difficult, and that's basically an impossible contradiction. And you acknowledge that and just muddle through anyway. So right uh, at Rolling Stone, you know, you know uh, uh, when the various kinds of uh, bootlegging and they're going to steal our music uh, if we let them have it. There was a thing that happened. Um, uh, I, I guess it probably still happens sometimes, uh, where the, uh, you would, the journalist would be allowed to go listen to the record, maybe even listen to it twice, <laughs> and perhaps and take notes, but could not walk out with the music. <laughs> and God. they had to do the re- they had to do the review from that, and because everything is deadline oriented. I mean, everything is what's hot, what's new in, in uh, magazine journalism, and even that's even truer, really, in online journalism. Uh, uh, it, it means that a lot, of, a lot of really inadequate stuff gets written about that music. 
I mean, so to the extent where they're at some some online places, they do what they isn't it called first takes, where they essentially they listen to the record and take notes and they print that without claiming that it's the final thing. That's actually a more honest way of doing it than what I just described, where where I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but the the the, the honchos at Rolling Stone, where I I just I had a gig there for about a year and a half um, after the voice was purchased uh, by the Hounds of Phoenix and I got fired. Um, uh, and that was in 2006, right? That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, this would have been 2006, 2007. I just, you know, I, I, I got, I, I was very well paid at Rolling Stone. I wrote what they, you know, they said, you have to read this R. Kelly album. And I, I figured out ways to really insult the motherfucker. Cause my attitude was never review him again. After I saw that tape on the online in 2004, um, uh, but I, you know, it was my job, so I did it, and I managed to hit him pretty hard while I did without cheating the music. Um, uh, in any case, uh, I would not do that. I would not go in to the studio and take notes and write the review. I just said no, and uh, I and respect. It, yeah, and another pitfall of that that I think I respect you a lot for avoiding was the Rolling Stone and, and some really good critics like Dave Marshall one would have sort of an aesthetic agenda, you know, and, and he for a while was pushing heartland rock. And I remember as a young punk rocker being just, who was also obsessively uh, uh, fascinated with the rock and Rolling Stone record guide in 83, you know, I'm, I love Dave Marsh and I'm, I'm letting him build my musical taste, but then I'd read him make this unflattering comparison between say Graham Parker and Iggy pop. And to me, there was no comparison between, you know, the God of punk Iggy pop and Graham Parker, who's some fusty duddy old dude. So I, I admire that. That's not really fair either. Graham Parker oh, no. was really good there for about, a, for about, for, I mean, he really, he started repeating himself much too early, but sure. And, and, but and, he's and, not and, an and spiritual limit. His spiritual limitations really began. Well, it's not like Iggy Pop has no spiritual limitations. Well, for around. sure. <laughs> uh, 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 and in fact, I don't think Iggy Pop has done very a whole lot of great music since 1980 either. No, no. And, and most people, uh, you know, I've always sort of just judged people on their initial explosion. And if somebody manages to be creative over the long term, like Muddy Waters or Neil Young, that's just gravy. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the role of the critic in creating a canon. And, you know, in the introduction, is it still good to you? You kind of run through what you call the the titans of rock, which are, you know, pretty conventional choices, but solid ones and, and well-reasoned. And most of them you've talked about, but there's one that you admit and you apologize for it. And most of the ones you admitted in previous collections you've gotten to. But I've become really fascinated with the great Louis Jordan. And so I'd like to get you to talk a little bit about what we're... Well, yeah, but Louis Jordan is certainly in my pantheon. Oh, absolutely. You just haven't written about him. So I want to get a little teaser of of what you would say about Louis Jordan when you do write a piece about him. On the one hand, Louis Jordan was the great precursor of what became rock and roll, the 40s precursor. He was a hit maker. Enormous in the black community, but with with pop crossovers, um, he was comic. Um, with a, uh, a, 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 he also played the saxophone, so there was certain jazziness to what he did. But it was definitely not uh, virtuoso saxophone. Um, he was seldom soulful. Um, uh, he was more of a humorist than anything else, um, and. Uh, uh, and I would say, and, and, and when, when I looked into Louis Jordan, didn't, you don't have to look in very hard. His father was a professional musician who worked with a minstrel show. Did he work in blackface? I don't recall. Um, 
many, many African-American performers did work in blackface in the 20th century. Supposedly, blackface minstrelsy ends in the end of the 19th century. That's complete hooey. And I, and I don't think people believe it anymore. Um, used to, though. Uh, and and, and uh, so all, all of which is just to say that he, his father was an entertainer um, who it could be claimed burlesqued the black experience. But the fact of the matter was, by the time, I mean, the reason minstrelsy survived into the 20th century is not because white audiences liked it. It was because, I mean, not primarily. It's not as if there weren't some, but because black audiences liked it. <laughs> so he was, burles- he was burlesquing the black experience for black audiences. And I think all of that enters into what Louis Jordan achieved and and some and at some point i may try to write about exactly how i think that plays out uh it's complicated i i would love to read that cuz the sort of popular eclipse of louis jordan is something that's fascinating to me having come to his music pretty late and been blown away then by the scope and accomplishment of it uh and and also realizing how monumentally popular he was in the 40s uh, and yet, uh, he, you know, uh, it, well, uh, everything I've said is about it's his complexity, not about his success or failure. He yeah. was great. Of, yeah, of, I, that, of that, there is no fucking doubt. He was great. Um, and, but and the, what, the say, exact lineaments of that greatness, its complications, that's what's hard to pin yeah. down. And my guess is that one reason people don't write about it is that they're scared of it. <laughs> or I, that, I think they, so, really, or that they really don't approve. I think a lot of them really don't approve, and that's fucked. Yeah, because he was he was funny and and you know where I'm mean, I'm just not comparing... soulful though, right? Right. He uh, I agree. I mean, there it, were there, there yeah. were other there were other black artists with pop crossover, into, especially two different groups, the the um, the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers. Uh, they were also people who had black art- artists who had popular success in the 40s, as was Nat King Cole, yet another example of who I write about in my Harvard collection, uh, uh, Growing Up All Wrong. But the Mills Brothers and the Ink Spots were soulful in very different ways um, and made enduring music, even though I could, I, I'm reminding myself that I probably haven't heard the Mills Brothers in a couple of years, but they were really good. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and uh, and plus, of course, there are all kinds of individual exceptions. Um, but uh, but as people with bodies of work, those are people with bodies of work that compare not quite as large uh, to Louis Jordan's. Yeah, and and I was just sort of fascinated by looking at Facebook and and what artists have Facebook groups. And you know, Robert Johnson, for example, has literally million Facebook followers or likes. And Louis Jordan has less than three hundred, I think. The last, the best group really? I can find, less than a thousand, definitely. And so, really, really. Oh, that, I mean, uh, uh, the Robert Johnson stuff thing doesn't. You know, are you familiar with Elijah Wall's book? Of about course, Robert, yeah, I've, I've interviewed. Johnson? Yeah, because one of the Elijah things, because one of the things Elijah Wall writes about is that far from being the devil propitiating, let's call it, uh, um, a tortured soul that people often talk about him as being, that a lot, a lot of the reasons uh, he was such a big deal was that he lifted pop tricks from uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Chicago uh, jump, what was the name of the, what is the genre called? 
I also the, don't remember the name of the label. The, there was one big, one Bluebird, big label you're guy. Thinking of the Bluebird gang in yeah, Chicago. Yeah, the Blue Best, Bluebird, exactly of, yeah. of that of of that world. He he, uh, you know, he uh, he robbed those guys, and and made it much. I mean, as far as I, I, I've never written about Robert Johnson because I because I found myself so uh, intimidated by the fact that I don't. Uh, I don't feel his spiritual depth the way I'm expected to. And when I read Elijah, and, and, and I put him on recently, and I realized, and I can certainly hear, suddenly hear what Elijah was talking about, and, and that in addition to all of that stuff, which I'm perfectly ready to concede is probably there, even if it doesn't move me, um, uh, he, uh, he cared a lot about melody and clarity and stuff that other blues people who are very admirable in their own ways, say Skip James, did not. And so let's throw in a, a Louis Jordan song real quick. This is my favorite Louis Jordan song, Saturday Night Fish Fry. Now if you ever been down to New Orleans, then you can understand just what I mean. Now all through the week it's quiet as a mouse, but on Saturday night they go from house to house. You don't have to pay the usual admission if you're a cook or a waiter or a good musician. So if you happen to be just passing by, stop in at the Saturday night fish fry. It was Friday. That was a great Louis Jordan Saturday Night Fish Fry. And I, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Elijah Wald because we had him on the show. That was, to me, a really rel- revelatory book. Um, revisionist, but still appreciating Robert Johnson. And, and Yeah, he uh, wrote that stupid book about the Beatles. Don't ever forget. <laughs> I mean, I love Elijah a lot, but I hate that book. Uh, I, I actually liked that book a lot. And, and I don't think it was about the Beatles. I talked about that show. It was more about Paul Whiteman and the history of, of pop synthesis. But that's. Have you uh, listened to Paul Whiteman? Oh yeah, I've I've been reading Giddens' think, Bing Crosby book and and really well, diving Bing, into well, Paul Whiteman. Well, that's a different matter. That's a different sure. matter. Sure, uh, Bing and, Crosby and is a different matter than Paul Whiteman. Yeah, but I mean, was, I'm sorry, Elijah. I don't, Paul Whiteman isn't any fun anymore. Well, I, I don't think he was making that case at all. I, I think he was just talking about the way music synthesized. But that's neither here nor there. I want to talk about your books. Well, I've got you. And and it would be fun to have you on with Elijah sometime, um, and 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 have a little throwdown there. But one of the like the canon creation is is one role, and then the political is another. You know, your your book reports you focus on bohemianism and politics, and I think we covered the race politics a little bit. Um, and and to me, you know, you were battling the resegregation of music, which wasn't just coming from FM radio. I've talked to people that worked at Rolling Stone in that period. Oh they yeah, were, they know, they would they would. I mean, they I mean, they did have their tokens, but but they were not good about it. No, and essentially the argument was, well, we put a black guy on the cover and it sold a third as many as when we did, you know, put John Lennon on the cover. And so it was a, a marketplace decision. And I, I can understand that, um, but I don't admire it. And the, the fact that you kept beating the drum for black music and as it evolved, you know, black artists were a little slow to pick up on the album format. You know, it wasn't until... Right, that's- that's right, what? and that had to do with the economics of uh, their target market, which was not an album buying market. And and then, and you know, and it takes Marvin Gaye rebelling against the Motown system to produce what's going on, and then Stevie Wonder's off and running and and everything. But I think ultimately, from the post hip hop perspective, you've been vindicated on that utterly. And and the James. Uh, well, I didn't need to be vindicated, frankly, but it, but thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, well, you know, I, you know, yeah. the, 
I mean, see, I, I, one reason I, I, I was very early on hip hop. Um, uh, and the reason for that is simple. It's that Pablo Guzman and, and, uh, his, uh, and Joe McEwen and a few other people had really convinced me to immerse in James Brown until I got it and I'd gotten it. And the reason I think James Brown is the most important musician in this entire tradition is that as Jonathan Leatham says in his, uh, great profile, uh, of, of, of Brown that appeared about just about six months before Brown died in Rolling Stone, signed by, uh, none other than my old friend, uh, and former voice music editor, Joe Levy. Um, um, the, uh, uh, uh the, the, he changed the way everybody in America heard rhythm. They don't know it, <laughs> but he changed it anyway. Um, uh, and as important as the, what I like to call the foregrounding of the beat in fifties rock and roll music. And the reason it was called the big beat, etc. Um, as important as that was, it was James Brown who then, in the, in the famous things said, every instrument is a drum. Um, uh, and, uh, and people started to make music as if that was the case. And I know people like, like, like Greg Tate, the, the great critic who started working at The Voice in 81, uh, uh, black critic. Uh, um, he said that he believes that the Ramones were part of that, too, hmm. even though the Ramones, even though the Ramones uh, uh, attitude towards rhythm was in a, some ways diametrically opposite to what James Brown was, because uh, they, too, had a different groove. They changed the groove of the music. Yeah, Tommy Ramone. Tommy Ramone turns out to be one of the most important musicians in the history of the music, and like Maureen Tucker before him, but better, um, uh, uh, teaches himself to play drums. Can only do so much, and but does it with such ferocity and dedication that when he's replaced by a much more accomplished drummer named Marky, who becomes Marky Ramone, Mark Bell, Marky Ramone has said that it took him months to learn how to play nothing but eighths. It took him months. It was really hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, they're, uh, and, and they're doing it in a context in which each instrument... And it required a lot of physical physical endurance too i'm sure and and, and they're doing it in a context where each instrument is basically playing part of a drum or, or part of the rhythm like the the so that the net effect of the ramones is one drum kit um i know yeah which is fascinating band. holy shit yeah. were they great <laughs> and i want to i want while, while i still got i want to do one last thing you start the um book reports off with a with a sort of i'm not sure was it new york review of books it's a new york review of book style piece on called In Search of yeah. Jim Crow. It was Los Angeles. That's right. It, it, it was, no, no, no. It, no, it, no. it appeared in The Believer. Ah, that's right. Yeah. And um, um, I, I, had, I was assigned to, re- to, to do it by um, a magazine that uh, Henry had called, you know, I think it's called Transition. Uh, Henry Louis Gates at a certain point was, he sort of called me up and suckered me in. I, how can you say no to Henry Louis Gates? But then uh, when I wrote, I'd written about two thirds of it, I, I gave it 
I gave it to a substitute, and he, I was told, well, we're not paying you, but you can say whatever you want. I wrote the first two-thirds of the piece, I handed it in, and I couldn't say that. <laughs> 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 I wasn't supposedly that they didn't like my attitude. It was that no one would know what I was talking about. I had to explain what this was. I had to explain what that was. I just told them to go fuck themselves. Uh, and uh, finished it, and eventually The Believer published it. And and it's basically a roundup of about half a dozen or so, maybe more than that, probably a full dozen of all the books you mentioned, of various pieces about blackface minstrelsy, minstrelsy in the role uh, and evolution of American music. And it seemed like there was sort of a boom in that from the mid-90s through the mid-naughts, where there was a lot of people taking... There were, there were a bunch of people writing books about it. That's correct. I, 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 I can't remember the exact number of books I dealt with. I guess it was eight or ten, probably four or five of which were really crucial. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, w once again, it was, I mean, I got interested when I got interested in, in, in Emmett Miller, uh, who was this, uh, who was the guy who did the version of singing the blues that H Hank Williams ripped off. Love sick blues. Uh, yeah. To, to his, to his eternal credit. Don't get me wrong. That's a great version. Of singing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not singing the blues. I don't mean that. No, it's, it's love sick blues. Uh, uh, love sick blues. Right. Singing the Blues, this guy Mitchell, a forgotten great record. You know that record? Great record. I do know that record, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> uh, 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 and um, uh, so uh, I, I wrote this piece that, that's also in my Harvard Anthology, uh, Grown Up All Wrong, about, about what I heard in this, in this blackface performer who was a remarkable singer and performer. And that sort of got me started really thinking about this stuff. At that point, there was just one book that anyone knew about by Robert Toll, which I'd been hearing about for years, but had never read. And I started there and then I branched out. Um, I guess I read about 15 books altogether to write that piece. Yeah. And it's an excellent piece and kind of comes around. Uh, the, the, the yeah, ended... I've had a lot, I've had a lot of academics, including black academics uh, who tell me they teach that piece. Um, I'm uh, proud of that. You should be. It's, it's, it's an excellent piece. And um, this has been an excellent hour uh, talking to Robert Christgau, the Dean of American Rock Critics, about his two new collections, Book Reports, a music critic on his first love, which was reading, and Is It Still Good to You? 50 Years of Rock Criticism, 1967 to 2017. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great. Thank you. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. This episode wraps up our fifth season. We'll be taking a two-week break and then returning with author Ted Joya on the birth and death of the cool. Is It Still Good to You? 50 Years of Rock Criticism, 1967 to 2017, and Book Reports, a music critic on his first love, which was reading, are published by Duke University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com.
still have time for a tempting snack. Are you sick and tired of movie review shows that are just missing something? Do you need more history? Do you need more laughs? Do you need more meandering, insane ramblings than most movie shows provide? Well, then I've got the show for you. Real Rock, with me, the rock and roll reverend Andy King. On Real Rock, we look to dissect rock and roll movies from not only a historical view, but also through a critical and oftentimes personal view. Every episode of Real Rock is a little different, with occasional parodies, sometimes special guests, and a lot of unhinged rants. So pass the popcorn, pass the vape, and hit the lights. We're going to the movies. Listen to Real Rock wherever you catch your pods. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 